Well, if you have a Bible, take it to that text in 1 John that was just read. I'm going to introduce myself. My name is Kyle, and I'm a pastor here. I've um, been in a series, we've been in a series, on, in the book of 1 John. And as we, uh, as we start uh, the season of Advent, a season of waiting and expectation, a season where um, Christians look to uh, the final promise coming of Christ, and they do so by reminding themselves often of how God has fulfilled his promises, uh, particularly in the first coming of Christ. Uh, as, we, as we enter that season, we actually enter a section in the book of 1 John that is talking about living in light of the second coming. And uh, so because of that, I decided not to get off of our normal uh, study in 1 John, but we're just going to go right on through. Um, let, me, let me pray for us as we, as we do that. God, your word is truth, and you have given it to us in love. And so we ask that this true word might set us free, and that we might be free indeed. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. Do not love the world or the things in the world. It's pretty straightforward and comprehensive Command, do not love the world, and comprehensive, or the things in the world. That seems to cover pretty much all of it. Do not love the world or the things in the world. It's, it's straightforward, it's comprehensive, and it's somewhat stereotypical, let's be honest. And if you were here and you were just investigating Christianity, uh, then this probably confirms every stereotype that you have about Christians, that they're anti-environmental, do not love the world, that they're anti-enjoyment, that they're anti-involvement, in short, that they're anti-love. Do not love the world or the things in the world. Do not love the world. Now, this stereotype is played out in all sorts of uh, movies. I think of Babette's Feast, the 1987 uh, Danish film. Uh, It's set in a pietistic Lutheran community in Denmark. Uh, Two daughters of a pietistic Lutheran pastor, um, uh, it it revolves around their story. When they were young, they had many suitors, but their father drove them all the way because he was anti-marriage and anti-love and anti-pleasure. They took after their father, and later in life, they pretty much um, took on these characteristics. They are old, they are uh, by themselves, they are alone, and they are running this small little Danish community. Uh, Through a number of circumstances, a French cook comes into their community, which they don't know is this amazing French cook, and she, uh, through some circumstances, ends up fixing uh, an elaborate meal. As all the recipes are coming in, um, these Danish women, uh, the daughters of the pietistic Lutheran pastor, they start becoming scandalized because they are worried that if they participate in this meal, to actually enjoy it would be de facto to sin. And so as the meal is being prepared, they call a meeting with all the other villagers who are going to participate in this meal, and they decide, okay, we'll eat the meal, but we won't enjoy it. And we won't talk about it. 
And you can almost hear ringing in their ears, do not love the world or the things in the world. Another less known movie, perhaps less known, I don't know if that one's so known, is called The Big Kahuna. It does have very uh, known actors in it. Kevin Spacey and Danny DeVito are traveling salesmen. They are there at this conference, um, and they sell industrial lubricants like oil for big machines, right? And they are, uh, they are there at this conference with their uh, younger colleague. His name is Bob. Uh, they make Bob the bartender the first night of their, um, of their suite, and they invite all the people from the conference over, which is ironic because Bob happens to be a Baptist who doesn't drink. But he turns out to be a pretty good bartender because he's a good conversationalist. And there, uh, he ends up talking to the CEO of the largest company, the company that they are trying to land. They are trying to land the CEO who is the big kahuna. He strikes up a, uh, he, he ends up having a, a rapport with the big kahuna. And because of this, he's invited to a private event the next night. Uh, Kevin Spacey and Danny DeVito's characters, they are not invited, and so they see this, though, as the opportunity, the opportunity to land the sale, to land the big kahuna. So they coach him on the art of the deal, as it were, and they tell him, this is how you land the sale, and so he goes, and he ends up getting a private audience with the big kahuna, and they, they talk for, for a great length, a great time, and he comes back, and much to Kevin Spacey's characters and Danny DeVito's characters' surprise, uh, instead of talking about industrial lubricants, he talk, Bob talks about heaven and hell and religion. And they're just dumbfounded. I mean, that's the whole reason why their company sent them there, was to land the sale, and he didn't talk about the sale. And the reason is, is because Bob kind of sees business as a necessary evil. And what he loves is heaven. And if, if he were to respond to why he acted the way he did, you may think that he could have gone to 1 John 2.15, do not love the world or the things in the world. Anti-environmental, anti-enjoyment, anti-involvement, anti-love, this is the stereotype. And it's a stereotype because in many respects it rings true. There are many Christians and various Christian traditions who, who teach this, who feel this. You can't really enjoy the world. Is that what John is saying? It seems to be pretty straightforward and comprehensive. He goes on in verse 15. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. In other words, John has been giving tests, and those tests are saying, these are evidence to know that you are in a relationship, a vital and vibrant relationship with God. And here are some of the tests. Um, you keep God's commandments, because that is how you show your love for Him and are in relationship with Him. Or you love uh, your 
brothers. You love other Christians because uh, that is how you show that you love what God loves. And then here's another one, that you don't love the world or the things in the world. And if anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. In other words, this is another test. If you love the world, you don't have the Father's love. Now, does anyone find that odd? I mean, because doesn't the Father love the world? I mean, doesn't God love the world? So we're, if we love the world, the love of God is not in us, and yet God loves the world. I'm confused. I mean, in 1 John 4.14, John tells us that the Father has sent His Son to be the Savior of the world. And in fact, this is the indisputable proof that God loves the world. 1 John 4, 9, in this, is love, in this the love of God was made manifest among us, that he sent his only son into the world that we might live through him. So God sends his son into the world, and the son is the definitive proof that God loves the world. And when God sent his son into the world, didn't he send his son? Wasn't his son a thing in the world? Didn't he have a body? And are we not to love the son, but do not love the world or the things of the world? I am really confused. So I went to the commentators this week and I read them all and they didn't help until I got to my favorite commentators, Calvin and Hobbes. I'm reading Calvin and Hobbes and uh, there is, um, there's Calvin. He's in a jet fighter plane and over the radio he hears these instructions. He hears, uh, enemy attack, two o'clock. And Calvin says, okay, but what am I supposed to do until then? Some of you will get that at lunch. (laughs) You know, words can have different meanings and functions in different contexts. Two o'clock. And sometimes in a context that can be ambiguous. And the word world has many different meanings especially in John. Some, one theologian has categorized like six. I'm not sure if it's that specific. But uh, when John uses the word world, he uses it in different ways. And so we have to understand how he is using it here. And here I think it's very clear that John is using the word world in a very restricted sense. We can tell that from verse 16. Look at how he goes on. For all that is in the world. He's about to define everything in this world that he's talking about. The desires of the flesh and the desires of the eyes and the pride of life is not from the Father, but is from the world. See, notice John doesn't say, for all that is in the world, the people and the cities and the mountains and the ocean. Notice that John doesn't say, all that is in the world, the art and the architecture and the culture and the music. Uh, notice he doesn't say the institutions and the academies. No, he doesn't say that. He says... The desires of the flesh and the desires of the eyes and the pride of life. And what binds all these together? Well, we can see from the end of verse 16. They are not from the Father, but are from the world. That is, they do not derive from the Father. They don't have their source in the Father. They aren't given by the Father. You see, John is not talking about the world of God's creation. He's talking about the world of sin's rebellion. And it's important to make that distinction. In other words, John is talking about what we might call worldliness. And worldliness in the Bible is a way of being in the world that sees the world without reference to God. It's not from the Father. 
is not derived from the Father, is not given by the Father these desires, is not rooted in the Father, but is separate from the Father. That's what flesh means. Flesh is material existence just by itself, without reference to God. And so worldliness does not mean involvement in the world. Worldliness means involvement in the world without reference to God. And notice where John locates worldliness. He locates it in desires. The desires of the flesh. The desires of the eyes. What do you think is wrong with the world? I think it's an important question to ask because we all have an answer and we live out of that answer. We live out of the answer that this is what the world would look like if its problems were solved and we live toward that end. We are what Charles Taylor is called social imaginaries. So we all have an answer, but have we thought about the question, what's wrong with the world? Well, most of the time I think that if we were to say what's wrong with the world, it's something out there. But notice that John says that it's something in here. One time a newspaper, there's a story that a newspaper uh, wrote and said, um, what is wrong with the world? And uh, the Catholic uh, writer G.K. Chesterton wrote in, uh, according to, we don't really have evidence of this, so as as a historian I have to say that. We don't have evidence of this. But the story goes that Chesterton wrote in, and it makes sense of him and who he is, uh, and his humor. He says, Dear Sir, and his humility, Dear Sir, I am yours, G.K. Chesterton. In other words, Chesterton was saying, What's wrong with the world is me. It's in here. Now, we need to be careful not to individualize and personalize evil too much. There is this thing called evil, called Satan, and that's not in here. But we also need to be careful that we don't make everything that's wrong with the world that which is out there. You see, it works out in desires, in here. And what's wrong with these desires? Well, John writes that they're the desires of the flesh, the desires of the eyes. Is the problem with these desires that they're connected to our bodies? What kind of desires wouldn't be connected to our bodies? I don't know if you think, then that's probably connected to your mind. And so, what's wrong with these desires? The New York Times columnist David Brooks, he wrote a book, I think about a year ago, maybe uh, two years ago, uh, but it's called The Road to Character. And in that book, uh, David Brooks does a lot of research. And in researching for that book, one of the resources that he draws on a lot is uh, the Christian church father, St. Augustine. And what Brooks said that he learned from Augustine is that the fundamental problem with the world is that there's something broken with inside of us. And the thing that's broken with inside of us is our loves or our desires, the problem that Augustine saw, though, was not that we desire or that we love. He, he said that we are, by nature, people who love. At the fundamental level, we are lovers. That's who we are as humans. The problem is not that we love or that we desire things. The problem is that our desires are out of proportion. We love the wrong things in the wrong way, in the wrong order, at the wrong time. We, we have the wrong priorities to our loves, 
And so we sin, Brooks summarizing Augustine, when our loves are out of order. He writes, we all love a lot of things. We love family, we love money, we love a little affection, status, truth. And we all know that some loves are higher. We know that our love of family is higher than our love of money. However, when those ranks begin to shift, that's when sin comes in. Our love of truth should be higher than our love of money, but if we're lying to get money, we're putting our loves out of order. If a friend tells a secret and you blab at a dinner party, you're putting your love of popularity above your love of friendship. You see, our loves are out of order. In other words, what the problem is, and fundamentally, Augustine said, what the problem is is that the thing that we're supposed to love most, the person, is God. And when we don't love God most, all our other loves get out of whack. That, that, that we are to love God and then we love everything else in light of our love for God and God's love for us. And so the problem is not that our desires are connected to our bodies. The problem is that they're disconnected from God. That's what the last clause of verse 16 says. The problem is that they're not from the Father. They're not sourced in the Father. They're not his creative intent for us in the world. But they're from ourselves. They're from the world. And so the desire of the flesh, what is it? The desire of the flesh, it's a desire that does not put love for God and love for others beyond love for self. And I have a lot of desires of the flesh. What about you? Oftentimes I seek my own interest above the interest of others, and certainly above the glory of God. My comfort, my happiness, my status, my satisfaction, my name. I'll give you a little window into this and how it works out. I was at a conference uh, this last week in San Antonio, and, and, uh, and there was a panel discussion, and a, a topic came up, and it's the topic that... Um, my work and my book is centrally about. And they talked about this topic for 30, 45 minutes. And, uh, and I found myself getting really upset. And the reason I was upset is because they didn't mention me. And they know me. I know the people up there on the panel know who I am. Maybe like at a distance, but they know me. But here's the thing about it. Everything that they were saying was true, and I agree with. And at that point, I had to have this, like, check, and I'm going, you know what? Right now, I am putting the love of name and recognition and pride above the love of truth, because they're talking about truth. And so who cares if they're talking about me? But I care, because the desires of the flesh care. What about you? Do you have moments, extended moments, where you put the love of self above the love of your family, your children, your coworkers, and most of all, above the glory of God? You know, most of the time, this desires of the flesh, it gets worked out in the desires of the eyes. And what we see Eve saw the apple that it was pleasing to her eyes, and she ate, and there went her demise. 
and the demise of creation. David stood on a roof and he looked over and he saw Bathsheba that she was pleasing to his eyes. And there went his demise and the demise of his kingdom. In the movie, The Silence of the Lambs, Clarence Starling is a, a detective. She's played by Jodie Foster. And she is looking, she's seeking for a psychopathic killer. And in order to get a window into how the psychopathic killer thinks and so that she might catch him, what she does is she ends up interviewing another psychopathic killer uh, played by Anthony Hopkins. His name is Hannibal Lecter. And there's this scene where she's talking with Hannibal to find out, like, uh, how do I understand this killer and how can I get to him? And in the midst of this scene, uh, Hannibal asks, what, what does this man do? What does he do, this man you seek? And she said, he kills. And Hannibal says, no, that's incidental. That's not what he does. What does he do first? What's the first thing he does? What's the first principle that he does? Why does he kill? And she says, well, he kills because... Uh, I don't know if he's bored or for power or, 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 or to steal or something like that. And, and Hannibal says, no, he does something else first. Before that, he covets. That is his nature. How do we begin to covet, Clarence? And she's like, uh, uh, uh. And he says, do we seek out things to covet? She says, no. He says, no. We begin by coveting what we see every day. And isn't that how it is with you and me? We covet what we see every day. We covet other friends' professional careers or the professional careers of those on our, of the success of those on our street or on our hall or in our pew. We don't have pews, so I'm not talking about you. Of course. Why? Because we see uh, the increases of lifestyle, the expansion of home, the new car, the vacations. We covet the families that other people have because we see another birth announcement on Facebook. Or we covet the singleness of our friends because we see how they are able to go out and go to a concert every night on Instagram. We covet what we see. That's how it is. And so we see these things around us and we see the lives that people have and we say, I want that. We have an inordinate desire for what they have which doesn't belong to us. And what's wrong with that? What's wrong with these desires? Desires of the flesh, desires of the eyes. Well, what's wrong with them, I think, is that deep down what they are is they are a desire. I mean, what do we want in these things? They're a desire for contentment, for happiness, apart from God. They're not from the Father. They're idols. They're wanting contentment and happiness and fulfillment and satisfaction and security apart from God and apart from God's love. The desires of the flesh and the desires of the eyes. And that's also true about the pride of life. 
Well, what does that mean, John? What is the pride of life? Well, John uses this word life one other time in the epistle. It's actually in chapter 3, verse 17, where he says, if anyone has the world's goods, it's the same word, the world's life, and sees his brother in need. In other words, the word life is a reference to uh, the way that we would use the word living. I'm making a living. Our livelihood, right? How do I, what's your livelihood like? It's talking about the things that are necessary to secure and sustain biological life. And so the pride of life is confidence in the things that would secure and could sustain biological life. Uh, the pride of life is confidence, putting ultimate confidence in our livelihood, in what we do to make a living. Jesus tells a story about the pride of life. It's recorded in Luke 12. He says that there's a land of a rich man, and that land produced plentifully. The story starts off with this man having a good year, nothing more, nothing less. He is a rich man, however. Uh, and so it's not that he has a windfall that creates his need, that gives him what he needs. He has a, uh, a windfall that gives him beyond anything that he could ever need. Uh, and then it says that he builds barns. He tears down his barns and he replaces them and fills them up. And, and you think, well, that's a good idea. But, you know, in the parable, he's called a fool. Fool, God says to him, this night your soul is required of you. And the things you have prepared, whose will they be? Now, in the Bible, a fool is not somebody who is... Um, has a low IQ or is intellectually uh, not adept. In the Bible, a fool is someone who lives without relation to God. The fool has said in his heart, there is no God. See, the problem with this rich man is that every decision and everything that comes to him, uh, he, he takes it as if it's just his and his own and his ideas and his decision to make and in so doing, he believes, because he is looking at life without reference to God, he believes that financial security is security. He says to himself in the midst of this parable, soul. Now, we don't usually talk to ourselves in this way, but we do talk to ourselves. In the shower, on the commute. He talks to himself and he says, soul, you have ample goods laid up for you for many years. Relax, eat, drink, and be merry. He's saying, my financial security is security. He thinks that to secure possessions is to secure life. And so he spends all his energy trying to protect his possessions, all the while he neglects his soul. And so Jesus says, one's life, one's life, does not consist in the abundance of their possessions. Do you think that life, your life, consists in the abundance of your possessions. That's the pride of life. Does pride of life mark your life? And how would you know if it did? Well, here are a couple tests. Look at your anxiety. Now, it's okay to be concerned, and not all anxiety is wrong. 
to say that because Paul says do not be anxious about anything means that we can't have any sorts of anxiety uh, doesn't take in the other things that he writes, like how he's anxious over the church and that Christ is formed in them. There's a certain amount of anxiety and a certain type of anxiety that is okay, but to be overwhelmed, eaten up with anxiety, that could be a test that you're putting your ultimate security not in, not in God and in life in God, but in something else. Worldly goods and possessions, health, and, uh, and home. Look at your anxiety. Look at how you spend your money. If you aren't able to give your money away because you're dreaming of things to spend it on, then that suggests that deep down your life is marked by the pride of life. How about another test? What about busyness? I'll be honest, the way that I respond most when people ask me, how's it going? I say, I'm busy. Anyone like that? And we are busy. But why are we so busy? And are we busy doing the right things? I'm becoming increasingly convinced that a lot of the busyness that is marked in my life, the reason that I'm so busy is, yes, I'm doing things that I'm called to do and that need to be get done, but I'm also doing things beyond that. I'm also filling my life with things beyond that. I'm also filling my life with, with a busyness that results from a fear of missing out. A busyness that says I have to, to get, to have security and satisfaction. It's the pride of life. It's the pride of life. But there's a problem with these desires. There's a problem with the pride of life. There's a problem with worldliness. And it's there in verse 16. Where John reminds us, look at it, that the world is passing away along with its desires, but whoever does the will of God abides forever. That these things are passing away. You know, if you live to look good, you're going to be severely disappointed at some point in life. Your facelift will fall, and your fifth one will look awful when you are older. If you are living to feel good, then you will be severely disappointed. Because once you hit about 35, at least 40... Every day down from that point forward, if you wake up and you can't feel like pain somewhere, then that's a great day, right? Because most days that's the case, and it's increasingly so. If you live to feel good, you are going to be disappointed. If you think that by eating the right things and doing the right things and securing the right amount of wealth that you can be satisfied and content and that you can be indestructible, you're going to be severely disappointed. Case in point, Steve Jobs. He's the most successful businessman of our time. And he got cancer. And you know what? His finances could not save him from cancer. 
You know what else couldn't save him from cancer? His diet. And he tried. At the end of the day, nothing that he had or did could secure his life. And the only thing that will last, ultimately, the only thing that will last is the love of God and loving the things God loves in the right proportion. See, it's only when you see the world from the perspective of eternity that you're able to love the world aright. And this world is passing away along with its desires, but whoever does the will of God abides forever. So what do you long for? What do you hope for ultimately? And if Jesus isn't in the picture, well, that world will be gone. And love, it is of God, 1 John 4, 7. And so love will last. We are not primarily homo sapiens, thinking beings, but we are homo adorans. We are loving, desiring beings, fundamentally. And so we will love. Don't you want your love to last? Well, how does your love last? You love the things that will last. And your security, therefore, is found in a loving relationship with God and receiving and reciprocating His love to Him and to the world. But why? Why do we desire? Why do we desire things inordinately and in the wrong way? Why do we desire things apart from God? What do we want in these desires of the flesh and the desires of the eyes and the pride of life? I think I know what we want. I think that we want... We want affection. We want satisfaction. We want contentment. We want happiness. We want security. In other words, we're seeking after all these things because at the end of the day, we want to know that we're loved. And that's the answer. See, how, how, do, we, how do we have our, our, our heart wooed away from these desires, and how do we desire God and his kingdom above all else? Look again in verse 15. Do not love the world or the things in the world. If anyone loves the world, what is absent? The love of the Father is not in him. And so if you want to not love the world, if you want to not be a worldly person, then you actually need to have the love of the Father in you. Then you need to know that you are loved above all else. I was talking to a friend uh, who had a motorcycle, and uh, we were talking recently, and I was asking him, um, you know, about, like, riding and what interesting rides he had done lately and, and, uh, and how much he'd worked on the bike and all these other things. And as I'm talking to him about it, he says, well, I haven't actually touched the bike in, in years. I haven't ridden in years. I actually, I need to sell it. And I'm like, what? You, you love that thing. I, what? He goes, to be honest, I spend all my time doing golf now. I spent all my time playing golf, watching golf, reading about golf. Golf is my love. And I haven't really even thought about the motorcycle until you just asked me about it. That's how it works, isn't it? How do you, how do you get rid of a love or a lover? You find a greater love. You find a greater lover. It's what Thomas Chalmers called the expulsive power of a new affection. A new affection that 
dislodges the old one. How do you not love the world and the things of the world? Well, it's the expulsive power of the love of God. That he is for you and nothing can separate you from him in Christ Jesus. That you are secure in him. And that his love is a conquering love that will keep you safe and victorious and bring you through death. That his love is a love that emptied heaven of its treasure temporarily that he might make you his treasure eternally. That God loved the world. He desired you so much that he sent his only begotten son into the world and that he shed the precious blood of his son, the, the most precious blood of all, the most highest price that he could pay. He paid for you because he valued you so much. And when you get that, then you know that you are loved, that you are accepted, that you can be satisfied in him because he is, he is the greatest spouse that you could ever have. He is the perfect father. And he brings you into a perfect family of harmony and security and love. And he is your satisfaction. And when you get that, then it drives out all these other things that we seek after away. And it reframes them and reorders them in light of the love of God in Jesus Christ. So that's what we need to remind ourselves and to keep reminding ourselves and to dwell in his love. Let's prepare to do that as we come to the table. God, I pray that you would surround us with your love and that here at this feast, the taste of your love in Jesus by the Spirit would drive out all other desires and reframe them in light of who you are and what you have done for us. In the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, amen.